You're listening to the New Hope Church Podcast. To learn more about what we're doing on the south side of Indianapolis, you can check us out online at becomehope.com. If you like what you're hearing here, be sure you check out one of our companion podcasts. We have a daily devotional podcast called Let's Find Out Together, as well as an apologetics podcast called Salty Saints. Let's listen in as today's talk comes from Randy Spate. morning. It's uh, great to see you here this morning. Thank you so much for taking part of your busy day to spend here with us. Um, Chrissy talked about selfies. We live in a selfie world, don't we? Every, how, how many of you have taken a selfie? Come on, come on. Admit it. Yeah, okay, okay. They're, they're just with us today, aren't they? Now, um, I found a couple of selfies on the internet I thought I would share with you. Here's one. Now, not only is the guy stupid enough to be at the running of the bulls in Spain, you can see four, three or four bulls chasing him, but he's taking a selfie while he does it. But this next one is my favorite. It is the selfie to beat all selfies. This one... uh, It's kind of top this. Anybody, anywhere, anytime, any place, top this. An astronaut, while she was on an EVA, took a selfie of herself with the world in the background. How cool is that? We live in a selfie world. And it doesn't take you very long if you will take a look at social media, the internet, at television, Uh, just log on to Snapchat, TikTok, people taking pictures of the food that they're eating, pictures of themselves, because, of course, everyone everywhere wants to know what I am doing every hour of every day. Hyper-individualism, the dictionary defines it as a tendency for people to act in a highly individual way without regard to society. Last year, Psychology Today put out an article on what they called a toxic tendency towards hyper-individualism. We want to be the best me that I can be, but it's all about me. So what does scripture say about that? Well, Chrissy told us that we had to go back to the beginning, so let's do exactly that. Genesis chapter one, on the sixth day, after God has created the world, the land, the water, the earth, the sky, he's put animals in it, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And they'll reign over the fish in the sea, over the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, 
he created them. Male and female, he created them. We see so much in these two verses. We see the image of God placed in us, and we begin to learn a little something about ourselves. We learn, first of all, that part of the divine is in us all. God breathed his own breath into us. We learn that the image of God is in all of us. Not some of us, but everybody has part of the image of God within him. The image of God does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. In fact, what does scripture say? In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created us differently. But the fact that we're different does not mean that some of us have more of God's image than others. We all have God's image. It means communion. God said, let us make man in our image. And the way we understand that theologically today, we talk about a God in communion with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally in communion with each other, who creates male and female, eternally in communion with each other. And he's put us on this earth so that we can be in community together. And then he says, when we make mankind in our image, they will reign. Now, later on in chapter 2, he spells that out a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had made, and the Lord made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. God put man in this garden and it gave him joy. The trees were beautiful. The fruit was delicious. So as we see what God has done there, what we notice is that it brought man great joy. Then later on in verse 15, the Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. God told man to reign over his creation. But what that means is that man was to care for it, to protect it. Now, he enjoyed the fruit that the trees, that the plants gave him, and that was appropriate. But man's purpose was to protect and care for the world that God had given him. So what happened? Well, God's plan was that the earth bring mankind joy. And in turn, mankind was to reign over the earth, protect it, and care for it. But chapter 3 comes. 
sin comes. In the story we're told in chapter 3 that a serpent approached Eve and first of all questioned God's word. Said, are you sure that God said this? And he got Eve to look at the one piece of fruit that man was not supposed to eat. So Eve saw that the tree was beautiful. Its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, and so she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. God created the Garden of Eden to give man joy. But suddenly, we see mankind desiring the fruit. Instead of joy, we see desire. The word, the word pleasing, the fruit was pleasing. It occurs about 40 times in the Old Testament. As I was studying this passage, I had never seen this theme before. How joy and pleasing turns into desire and coveting. The word pleasing occurs about 40 times in the Old Testament. First two times here in the Garden of Eden, it's translated pleasing. Every other time in the Old Testament. It's translated either coveting or lusting. Joy turns to lust, turns to coveting. Reigning turns to dominating, exploiting. This theme of desire and denomination, uh, domination goes on and on. It happens again and again. It happens in Genesis 3, 16. After the sin, God looks at Eve and he says, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Desire and domination. Boy, doesn't that describe the way we live today? God created us and gave us many things. And we take those things and we want more. We covet what other people have. We lust after what we don't have. And when we get it, instead of caring for it and protecting it, we dominate it. We exploit it. Man's plan. We want control. We lust after things that we don't have. And when we get it, we exploit it. We dominate it. Genesis chapter 4 we have the story of Cain and Abel. 
Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord receives Abel's, but he doesn't receive Cain's. And at first we think, is that because the sacrifice is bad? But God speaks to Cain, and we see why God rejected Cain's sacrifice. It wasn't that the sacrifice was less, it was the attitude of the person who brought the sacrifice. God says to Cain, you too will be accepted if you do what's right, but if you refuse to do what's right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. It literally says, sin desires you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Desire and domination. The rest of the Old Testament is this story. The story of how sin has taken the image of God, twisted it, stained it, warped it, and man tries Oh, he tries to get that image back. He tries to do what's right, and he fails every time. Abraham, the founder of Judaism, he goes off and he tells somebody that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister because he's afraid of what they might do. He does it not once but twice. Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. He names his 11th son his firstborn and creates in his family an incredible jealousy. His sons sell their brother Joseph as a slave. David, King David, a man after God's own heart, author of so many psalms, sees a young woman bathing, lusts after what he does not have, takes her, kills her husband. Time after time, good people try and they fail. The image of God has become so tarnished in them that they have no chance of living in God's original plan of enjoying what he has given us and reigning over it, protecting it, and caring for it. It's even true in the New Testament. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, talks about this. He says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin 
and death. God's image within us has become so tarnished that we seek to possess more. We lust after what we don't have. We exploit what we do have. God's original purpose for us, that his image bring us into communion with others, is broken. We have no communion. Instead of communion, we have jealousies, disputes. We learn quickly who we hate. Instead of caring and protecting, we exploit and dominate. We exploit and dominate the natural resources that God has given us until they're gone. We exploit and dominate the people that God has given us until that relationship is broken. We no longer have joy. We live a life of lust. But God has a new plan. Paul doesn't leave the world in Romans chapter 7. He goes on to Romans chapter 8. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So today, instead of sin dominating us, instead of us desiring to have more things, we belong to Jesus. And Jesus gives us freedom from the power of sin that has warped and twisted us. Paul goes on. The law of Moses was unable to, to, to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Now, instead of coveting and desiring, there's belonging. Instead of domination, the domination of sin in our hearts, there's freedom. God's plan for transformation is that we learn to desire Jesus. And as we do that, Jesus frees us from sin's domination. This plan of transformation brings with it a plan for God's renewal. We find joy in what God has given us. And we reign over it. We protect it. 
and we care for it. We find joy in what God has given us, our family, our community, our vocation, even the things that God has given us. He wants us to find joy in those things. And we can. We can be satisfied with what he has given us. And then we protect and care for it. We protect our family. We protect and care for the community that we're a part of. We protect and care for the things that God has given us. All of that is right and proper. Now we've started a new sermon series. This sermon series is simply called Imago Dei, the image of God. During this sermon series, we want to look at how our understanding of the image of God within us affects us as individuals. How have we tarnished the image of God within us? How has it moved us away from God's purpose for us? And what do we need to do to get it back? During this series, we want to look at what the image of God says about things that are happening in our world. We want to look at violence. See, what does our understanding of the image of God say about the way we treat each other? The violence, and not just the violence that we see out there. And I'm pointing towards Indianapolis. But the violence that we see in here. What does the image of God say about race? Yes, we have different colored skins. We have different heritages. What does God's image say about that? What does the image of God say about modesty? How we dress, how we present ourselves to each other. What we look for. What does the image of God say about abortion? If the image of God is in us, when does that start? And what does that mean for us? What does the image of God say about family? and the way we treat each other, husbands and wives, parents and children. What does the image of God say about sexual orientation and gender identity? If we do our job correctly, you will be offended in the next six weeks. If we do our job correctly, I'm going to be offended in the next six weeks. You know why? Because the image of God inside me has been warped and twisted. And if it is to be remade in the way that it was originally made, it's got to be twisted back into shape. When you twist a piece of metal into shape, you place it under stress and tension and stress and tension hurts. If we are do our job 
in the next six weeks. You will at some point be offended because God's word presents us realities, a reality that many times is no longer our own. And it tells us you must change. Change is painful. You see, we've got to identify the sin that is within us and deal with it by allowing God to restore his image in us. us. What we're saying is simply that if you want to be Jesus in every corner of your world, you must let God restore his image Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week and know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.